Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gary Milligan, your host. Today we'll be talking to Andrea Mudares, the author of The Enemy in Italian Renaissance Epic, Images of Hostility from Dante to Tasso. The book was published by the University of Delaware Press in 2019. Dr. Mudares is Associate Professor of Italian and Vice Chair of Undergraduate Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is the co-editor of two volumes of collected essays, one focusing on New Worlds and the Italian Renaissance, and the second on the Florentine poet Luigi Pulci. The book we will discuss today, The Enemy in Italian Renaissance Epic, was awarded the Aldo and Jean Scaglione Publication Award for Best Manuscript in Italian Literary Studies by the Modern Language Association. Andrea, welcome. I'm truly delighted to speak with you today. Thank you, Gary. Uh, It's really my pleasure to uh, participate in this podcast, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, our conversation. Great, let's get started. So I thought we'd just start today by hearing how you came to this topic. Okay, well, it's a, it's a kind of a long story. I mean, this was the, the book was um, developed, um, so built around my dissertation uh, at Yale. Uh, and um, the dissertation itself emerged from a paper that I wrote uh, I think it was my first year of grad school, so it's been long in the making. Uh, and um, it, the, the, the original idea was to focus on violence in, in, in the Renaissance, which obviously is a huge topic and could not be condensed in, in one uh, research project. But then sort of over, over the years, at, uh, you know, during, the, during my graduate program, I was able to narrow it down to the idea of the enemy. Um, in Renaissance epic, and uh, that still sort of uh, was too too broad of, of an idea, and it's really only in the revision process from the dissertation to the book manuscript that I was able to uh, sort of um, hone a more specific argument, uh, which I guess could be condensed in the distinction between or the lack of distinction between public and, and private enemies, at least in the way in which these two uh, categories are portrayed in, uh, in, uh, in the Italian Renaissance epic. Well, if, if you don't mind, let's pick up on, on that topic, because you spend some time in the introduction walking us through hostess versus enemicus and, uh, in, in Latin. So if you wouldn't mind maybe unpacking that for us now, the difference between these two words and how it informs your book. Yeah. So one of the... Uh, sort of theoretical um, sort of starting points of, of the project is the distinction which I find flawed in uh, Karl Schmitt's work. Karl Schmitt is the German uh, political philosopher, jurist, who was also a member of the Nazi party, like Heidegger and other German intellectuals of the time, whose political theories hinged on, on sort of the role that the enemy played as the indispensable factor in the formation of a political community. And, and I found 
I mean, this idea already sort of problematic. Um, sort of, I guess my 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 perspective is that uh, humans are political animals by nature, and therefore, I I I, I mean, I, I I try, I, you know, sort of part of my efforts during the process to write the dissertation entailed uh, an effort to reconcile the idea that. Uh, um, Again, humans are, are uh, by nature political animals. And at the same time, the use of, of, of hostility of, of the enemy as, a, as an instrument to create or forge or reinforce political community. Right? So it's the idea that a, a community remains unified as long as there is an outside enemy. Right? This is something that, you know, it's an old idea. It goes back to Classical philosophy, probably the, the most famous, uh, the most famous examples are in um, uh, probably in Sallust, actually, in you know, as in, in his theories of uh, of uh, metus hostilis. That's how he, uh, that's the phrase that Sallust uses, um, as the sort of the need to um, have a, an external threat that around which a community can coalesce. And, uh, and 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 so this was this was sort of the the, the my my sort of the, the the factor that initiated my interest in the idea of the enemy. And then as I started studying Schmidt's work a little bit more in depth, um, I, I noticed that his his idea of, of the enemy as this sort of uh, catalyzer for political community resided. To a, to a significant extent, in the distinction between external, that is public, enemy and uh, um, and private enemies, and the distinction goes back uh, first to the Greek terms and then to the Latin um, sort of two, two words, the two words that can be used in Latin to describe an enemy, which is hostis, that uh, is the term we can that at least some uh, Roman author used to describe public. That is political enemies and inimicus, which was in theory supposed to indicate uh, private enemies. There are other words in Latin that um, convey the same or similar ideas. You know, like adversarius, which still remains in in the, you know as a as a Latin term as adversary in English, adversario in Italian, and competitores, which is competitors, obviously. Uh, but 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 the the the, the sort of the, the foundational text for this distinction, at least in the way in which has been transmitted through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, is Cicero's De Officiis, which is one of the most influential uh, works of of Roman philosophy uh, throughout antiquity and then in the medieval and early modern eras, really through the up to the 18th century. Um, and so there's a passage uh, in, in the Deoficis in which Cicero explains the difference between hostis and inimicus. And so a hostis is really the only category of opposition that indicates uh, a political enemy, as in someone who can wage a war. And, and whereas inimicus is simply someone who's adversarial to you within the private realm. So this, this distinction, which is, you know, sort of what Schmidt, what Schmidt uses in his works, is 
nice and clear. The problem is that it doesn't really apply uh, consistently, uh, not just to sort of later interpretations of 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 these terms in the medieval and early modern period, but also in classical antiquity, and so. If you if you actually pay attention to the way in which Roman authors use the word hostis and inimicus, it, you, you often see that they are, if not in, exactly interchangeable, um, they can be used more loosely than uh, the categories that that Cicero lines would actually suggest. So you know both of these terms and and of course the way you sort of muddy the waters here to to show how they aren't so distinct inform each of the chapters and each of your chapters are dedicated to an epic poem i wonder uh, the first to dante's divine comedy the second to pulci's morgante the third to ariosto's orlando furioso and the fourth to tasso's jerusalemme liberato or the jerusalem delivered so I, if you don't mind, I'd go, when I go into these chapters, since each of the analyses is so distinct, it might be best to focus individually. And um, on the first chapter, you, you really narrow the focus to one canto in the Inferno, pointing specifically to Muhammad in Canto 28. And you know, I, I'm curious, I'd like to hear why you chose this moment to discuss enemies in Dante, since obviously there's so many options, <laughs> and also hear how you see Dante working through what you call a question of fathers and sons. Cool. Um, okay, so the so the structure of the book is, um, is sort of follows two trajectories. One is historical, and so the chapters are organized in um, chronological order. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I also had sort of there was a sort of a conceptual organization of the of the chapters. Um, that basically went from the micro to the macro. So, it, you know, one of the possible alternatives to the current structure was to have Dante as a, basically a corollary, and I'll get to why I chose Dante and in Inferno 28 specifically to serve that, that function. Um, as So the, the Ariosto chapter that focuses on Orlando's madness and the force to the idea of the enemy as the self uh, could have been the, the the first of the sort of Renaissance epic chapters, followed by um, the the Pulci chapter, which really focuses on uh, civic discord, a- and then the, the the last chapter on Tasso, which is really on on, on a global understanding of, of of conflict. Right. So at least it, the idea is that. Um, Christianity and Islam are two two religions that see themselves as universal, and so that sort of inevitably, if if one understands the the conflict between in the Jerusalem Liberata between Islamic and Christian forces as sort of almost as a cosmic clash, then you have sort of a, 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 an expansion from the micro to the macro, so from the from the enemy within the self. To the conflict, or the global conflict between these two um, self-professed universal religions. Um, now, the the task, the, the Dante chapter, uh, and specifically uh, Inferno twenty-eight, kind of 
provide this structure in a nutshell, in the sense that the conflicts depicted in Inferno 28, which is the canto that Dante dedicates to uh, the sowers of discord, so those who created divisions between within um, political and religious institutions, uh, moves from the greater, that is, from the universal, uh, that is, uh, Muhammad, who in the in the uh, sort of um, legends and the conventions that Dante follows at the time was understood to have divided the universal body of Christianity. So, so some of the legends about Muhammad uh, claim that he was uh, uh, a Christian, uh, in fact, a cardinal, and that he, once he was rejected for, uh, you know, he, he basically wanted to become Pope and, and he was denied that position. He, he then rebelled against the church and created its own sect, right? And so insofar as he did that, he divided the, the mystical body of, of the church, which, you know, going back to the etymology of the word Catholic is supposed to be universal. And so that's the first character Dante encounters in uh, in um, in Canto twenty eight, and uh, the last character Dante encounters in the same Canto is Bertrand de Bor, who was a Provencal poet of the twelfth century, known for his political martial uh, works, and who was also a political advisor. And it so happens that in in his poems. Bertrand de Born celebrated war, the exhilaration of war, of war, and uh, and at least according to Dante, he used these poems to sow uh, division between uh, Henry II of England and his son, who was named the Young King, mm. and this 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 conflict led to the to the death of the Young King, um, and 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 one should keep in mind that according to the theories of of um, inheritance around which dynastic powers were built in the Middle Ages. Um, the father and the son, according to the fiction of the law, uh, were one. So we're one entity. Okay, that's true. It's, it's the concept that guarantees the continuation uh, of the dynasty from father to son. Um, and, 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 and by the same token, and you know, Muhammad was considered not only sort of the divider of the of the mystical body of the church, but the theological point of contention around which the divisions between Islam and, and Christianity built was on the denial by by Muslims of the dual nature of Christ. So, just in short, uh, in Islam. Although Christ is is a highly respected figure, Jesus is a highly respected figure. He's not the Son of God, and so both both Bertrand de Born and and uh, Muhammad uh, basically divided not only the institutions to you know, that they were supposed to serve, but also the the fundamental bond between father and son. Um, now this also. So this idea that there's a sort of, a, a sort of um, uh, correspondence between the micro and the macro is something that Dante develops in his political treatise, Monarchy, as well. So, I mean, as he, probably Dante has in mind 
Aristotle's politics when he's when he's sort of thinking about the correspondence between uh, the individual and the global empire, which for Dante, as he as he describes in 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 monarchy, is the ideal form of government. Um, as well as, and Dante probably also has in mind um, traditionally understanding of the political body. So he, 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 again, he draws a correspondence between the global political community. Dante was some sort of a, cosmo, a cosmopolitan, if, if, if you will, mm. and, uh, and the, an immense body. And so the whole Book, whole book one of, of monarchy is built around this analogy. And so it seems almost as if Inferno 28 represents the opposite dynamic of, of warfare that Dante envisions in terms of peace in monarchy. And so, so, so that's why I end up choosing Inferno 28 as the most um, clear representation of Dante's engagement with war. You know, you you obviously are interested in the political because I think in each chapter, surprisingly, we'll see politics come out. And um, I, I'm, I really found interesting your reading of the Pulcismore Dante in terms of politics, as you mentioned it, about strife within the Florentine uh, context. So if, if you want... You know, why don't we look at like your second chapter? In some ways, I see this as this as one of three and another substructure here, the one of three chapters on Hercules. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you tell a really interesting story that somehow I, I had missed me on um, about the crab and Hercules. So, if you wouldn't mind, would you re- uh, tell us a little bit about the crab and Hercules and how it relates to Morgante and then ultimately to this political reading that you have with Medici and Florence? Sure. So. Um... I mean, Hercules is a is a is a is a singular figure in uh, uh, in the way in which uh, classical mythology was received in uh, in medieval and Renaissance Italy. So he was not only the epitome of strength, which is what one would sort of almost naturally associate to to Hercules, uh, but also of, of 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 wisdom, actually. So and and, and for this reason, there's a number of studies who, who claimed. Uh, Hercules as the sort of mythological personification uh, of their body politic, and among them is among these cities is Florence, and uh, and so Morgante as as Morgante as the protagonist, the giant protagonist of Pucci's poem, um, has been uh, sort of uh, linked. To, to Hercules since since people started uh, discussing this this poem. I mean, it's 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 long standing as an association. What what is what what I think has never been um, spelled out is the way in which, um, and that's why I focus on this on the chapter, in this chapter is how that sort of um, connection between Morgante and Hercules is woven together with uh, Pulci's understanding of political dynamics in Florence and within this broader discourse, more specifically with the issue of treachery, uh, which, you know, is sort of one of the themes of, of that chapter. And so 
um, you know, in, 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 in the Morgante, uh, the giant Morgante is killed by a little crab who happens to bite him on his heel as, as, as Morgante is sort of dragging a ship onto shore, right? So, I mean, it's a, it's a comical scene where the, the huge animal is killed by the tiny. And so, um, which also, and, and so it's just, it, this, the death of this, of this uh, huge character really takes place comically in, uh, in only a few, a few Otave. And, uh, and, 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 and so in addition to the contrast between the, the large and the small, there is also the uh, neglect with which um, Morgante himself treats his, the wound that would then lead to his death. Now, um, and so my, my discussion of Pucci's poem in, in, in that chapter is really built around this, uh, this brief episode, brief and, and very meaningful episode, on, 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 on a number of grounds. First of all, it's, this, it's on the theme of, the theme of treachery, because um, the crab was traditionally associated to treachery in medieval bestiaries. And so I, I, there's, a, there's a section of the chapter dedicated specifically to the sources to which, um, to which um, uh, Pulci most likely had access. And so and, and that's, that's, that, that's, that was a, a pretty well-established idea. Uh, again, that, that, that the crab was associated with, uh, with, um, with treachery. Now, the issue is that then I also I examine the disease that leads to Morgante's demise. And it's some form of gangrene. And, and the word gangrene, as I discussed in, in the chapter, uh, derives from the same word, canker, in Latin that uh, indicates more broadly sort of cancerous diseases as well as gangrene. And, and so, uh, again, part of the chapter is, is sort of built around a, a reconstruction of the medical sources that uh, were available to, um, to Pulci. And, 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 and so I, I basically tried to, to, cre- to, to develop this analogy by describing treachery as some sort of a, a cancerous disease of the political body. And, and, and that can possibly lead to um, a city's or a government's demise. And, and I interpret this as a, as a warning to the Medici regime, which, which sort of described itself in Herculean terms. I mean, uh, sort of, there's a number of, of, of works of art uh, that... Um, Describe and, 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 and literary text that, that basically characterize the city of Florence as a sort of as a reincarnation, a political reincarnation of, of Hercules. And so, um, so the temptation to see uh, Morgante as this sort of giant political body or, or a political body with gigantic ambitions that is consumed by a small treacherous threat that ends up to its demise was, was you know, almost irresistibly tempting. And then I also connected these uh, sort of the element, the discussion of treachery in the first part of the, of the, of the Morgante with the last five cantari of the poem, 
which are somewhat separate from uh, the first 23. Um, so the Morgante was published first in, in 1478 in 23 cantari, and then five years later with an additional five cantari, which clearly are influenced by the Pazzi conspiracy, which is this plot hatched by um, the Pazzi family in uh, coordination with foreign, uh, or at least non-Florentine, um, allies of the Pazzi, aimed at overthrowing the Medici regime. And, uh, and, and I mean, the, 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 rep- the discussion of, or really the representation of, of the events uh, that are traditionally described as the Pazzi conspiracy are memorialized in a, in a short treatise written, a short commentary written by Angelo Poliziano in, in 1478 itself. And, and, and most scholars have read the, the last five cantari of Pulcis Morgante as some sort of an illustration or, or certainly influenced by the events of the Pazzi conspiracy. So, so part of my effort in this chapter is to connect um, Morgante's death in, um, in, uh, in the first part of the poem to the death of Orlando in the, in the five cantari that make up uh, this sort of added section of, of the poem that focuses on the Rado Bronzeville, in which uh, the, the Christian rear guard, um, headed by, by, um, by Orlando, is slaughtered by, um, by its Muslim enemies in, um, uh, in the Pyrenees. When you, um, when you chose the book cover of David and Goliath, Caravaggio's wonderful painting, uh, were you thinking of the small killing the large here from from uh, Morgante, or did you have other ideas? <laughs> Just, this is a curiosity. <laughs> it's a good, great question. Uh, and, and I have to be completely honest here, and the, the, the image was picked by the publisher. Ah, well, they, they, had a, they had a keen eye to your book, though. Yes, I mean, I have to say that uh, my initial reaction was, okay, this is all too violent. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not sure if I want them beheading right on, on my book cover. But then I realized that they were right and I was wrong. And um, in, in part because the, I mean, the introduction to my book begins with the uh, uh, sort of images of beheading, I mean, or, 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 any, or any way of, 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 a, of a political body inflicting violence on itself, which is not exactly correspondent to the idea of, uh, of, of, of the Caravaggio painting on my cover. But it's uh, it it is somewhat uh, related. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's no, your... no. Look, well, well, it's wonderful to have a, you know publishers who with uh, with such knowledge of, of your work I, or understanding. I, I, it's a for those of you know our obviously listeners can't see it. But it's a beautiful cover, and um, anyway, it's a it's a selection from that painting, so it doesn't look quite as violent as the as the full painting. Exactly. <laughs> so when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh no, it's going to be the whole thing." Instead, it's 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 edited in a way that the most gruesome parts are, are sort of out of the picture. Well, th- that's right. Um, you know, continuing on the Hercules theme, of course, Hercules had his own. You didn't mention this, but you do in the book. Hercules has his own uh, encounter with the crab, uh, and I was. And you and you nicely draw Hercules throughout the next two chapters, and in, in some ways, I thought I wondered if you had origi- originally thought of this book as going to be about Hercules and enemies. But um, but in, in the next chapter, which is on Orlando Furioso, 
you actually, you know, we, we switch gears here and you, and you focus on the enemy of Orlando battling his own self, uh, you know, his madness. So, you know, there, again, there, you have many choices one can make about enemies in, in, in any of these poems. And I'd be interested in hearing why you chose this enemy in particular and what he may tell us about the politics of the Furioso. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I chose Orlando's madness as the form of hostility that I wanted to discuss uh, within the context of the Furioso because Orlando's madness explodes at the center of the poem. So it is the central episode of the Orlando Furioso precisely between the, the, the end of Canto 23 and the beginning of Canto 24 in a, in a, in a poem of 46 cantos is, is precisely the midpoint. Uh, so it's Ariosto himself who only in the last edition of the poem, so the Orlando Furioso was first published in 1516 in 40 cantos. In, in, in this initial version, um, Orlando's menace was not precisely in the middle. It's only in the 1532 edition, which is really the third one, that Ariosto places um, sort of the unraveling of, of Orlando's mind right at the center. And, and, and so, I, I mean, I basically took this, um, this, this structural point as uh, the you know, key reason to focus on this episode rather than on, 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 on the numerous other episodes that involve uh, various forms of hostility in the in the in the in Ariosto's poem. Um, there too, I, I it's true that that I use the I, I use Hercules as the sort of mythological uh, alter ego of, of, of for for Orlando, right? In part because the the um, Ariosto himself invites us to to read uh, Orlando in that light. Because the, the, the title is already some of the 16th century commentators of the Furioso had noted, is taken from Seneca's tragedy, Hercules Furens, uh, which describes the madness that seizes Hercules after he had killed the, the tyrant Lycus. And, uh, and this madness leads Hercules to kill his wife and children. And, uh, and so, so the invitation is right there. And, and moreover, uh, the name Hercules or Hercule was part of the Este dynasty. So Ariosto's patrons, uh, Ippolito and Alfonso d'Este, were the children of a, a man, the Duke, of, uh, the Duke of Ferrara, called Hercule. And so, again, the, the name Hercule was woven into the dynastic narrative of the Este family. Moreover, during the, the, the time in which Hercule, Duke of Este, was in, was, was in charge of the city, um, there was a dramatic reconstruction, reorganization of the urban profile of Ferrara. So they, in, the medieval part of the city is very intricate, it's narrow streets, uh, it's winding. And, uh, and again, during... Hercules' uh, reign, um, Hercules' reign, they, they added a, a large section of the city, which is much more organized, it's, it's straight angles, and, uh, and very large boulevards, very large streets. 
that is described as Additione Herculea. It's in her, so her, Herculean addition. And this sort of more rational uh, uh, sort of organization of that part of the city was supposed to be precisely in contrast with the medieval part of the city. And uh, a reflection of the idea that, of, that Hercules was not just the strongest of the classical heroes, but also uh, traditionally a very wise one. And, uh, and, and so the problem with this, with, with this mythology of Hercules is that not only does Hercules die in the most atrocious manner, which is sort of echoed in the way I treat Morgante in, in the previous chapter, but also in his madness. And, uh, and the language that, that Seneca uses, and, and obviously Ariosto is aware of this, is, um, is sort of the, the episode of Hercules' madness is, is framed by his fight against tyrants. And, 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 and specifically, Seneca uses, uh, sort of describes Hercules in, with a language that almost mirrors the language that he used to describe the tyrant Lycus in, in, the, in his tragedy. And so, again, I, I use this, this, um, the historical role that Hercules played in, in Ferrara and the way in which, uh, and, and what Ariosto could read in Seneca's tragedy to, to build a political reading of, of Orlando's madness in the Furioso. And, 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 and so one of the ways in which I interpret uh, Orlando's madness is a sort of allusion to the intrinsic risk within political, within, that exists within those who exercise political power to basically try and achieve an absolute unlimited power that we traditionally associate with tyrants. Well, this, I have a question, as you, sorry to interrupt, I'm, I find this point fascinating because you, you're drawing the connection between Orlando and Tyrant versus, versus Orlando Hercules, one often thinks as the other side of Hercules, which is the Hercules that is doing labors uh, and, and killing the tyrant. So would you, do you mind explaining that a little bit more? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to do that. It's, uh, um, again, some of it is already implicit in the way in which, um, in which Seneca describes Hercules uh, and what would need to read the, the, the thread in some details to see the, the parallels between uh, Hercules and the tyrant he kills. And, and, and the name of the tyrant, Lycus, is something that is actually quite significant. Uh, it's noteworthy that Lycus in Greek or Lycos means wolf. Okay, and and I'll have to come back to this sort of uh, animal imagery. Um, and then the uh, traditionally the the tyrant is described obviously as someone who rules to pursue his own interests or her own interests and desires rather the uh, interest of the public that is supposed to serve. And uh, um, and it's, it's it, the tyrant is always I mean always I mean consistently described in classical philosophy or classical literature as this sort of extremely unhappy human being who uh, is melancholic as 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 um, 
as Plato says in the Republic, is also someone who is prone to erotic desire and who has uh, basically a wolf-like disposition. And, uh, and, and, and so, I mean, one of the ways in which uh, melancholy, Orlando's melancholy has been described by a number of scholars is as a form of exacerbated melancholy. Uh, I mean, melancholy was the one of the four humors uh, in uh, in uh, in ancient and early and pre-modern medicine, physiology, and uh, it's 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 the kind of humor that, when combusted, can lead an individual to become furens, to become mad. And 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 this was the the disposition that was often as, ascribed to tyrants in. Uh, works of politics that also engage with medical discourse. And, 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 and so I basically try to weave a narrative in, in the Ariosto chapter that, that describes um, um, Ariosto, I mean, Ariosto's Orlando as a melancholy figure that becomes mad, enraged, furens. And, 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 and this disposition, the, the traits that, he, that, that define Orlando in his sort of moments of madness uh, for, about, for more than a quarter of the entire poem are consistent with the traits of a tyrant, the psychological traits of a tyrant. And, uh, and, and then... A problem emerges from the Furioso. I mean, let, let's assume that this is a general critique of those in power or, or a potential risk for anyone who exercises political power, right? The temptation to just accumulate as much power as possible and to exercise their power absolutely. So who is, who, does, does, does Ariosto have anyone in mind to, as, you know, as he writes his book? Is he, is he criticizing anybody uh, more or less indirectly. Now, my sense is that in in at least in the early sort of in the first edition of the poem, uh, I just is critical primarily of the Este family, and uh, I mean, and some of this criticism survives the revisions of the poem, but I think that that his target sh- changes a bit in the in the last in in the fifteen thirty two edition of the. In part because the historical circumstances have changed in Italy, and uh, uh, so the, the most prominent figure in European politics at the time becomes happens to be Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and uh, the the man whose troops invaded Italy in in fifteen twenty seven, who sacked Rome. Um, in the same year, and 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 so my 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 sense is that the way in which which Ariosto engages with politics, in in various forms, in the way he uses references to Roman Empire in the fifteen thirty two edition, suggests that he's the the target of his criticism might be uh, Charles V himself, whom Ariosto had met uh, when uh, in Mantua, if I'm not mistaken, and, and so. And, 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 and apparently Ariosto donated a, a, a copy of the Orlando Furioso to, to, to Charles as well. Uh, and so, so there was some degree of, of, of connection between the two of them. 
um, and and I try in the in that chapter to to suggest a possible uh, way of read a, a possible a, a critical way of reading um, the Ariosto's engagement with um, with contemporary politics and specifically with uh, with the role that Charles played Charles V played in in that politics. So, I, you know, I find there's so much to unpack here about this. Uh, reading that you have, which is fascinating. I, the first thing that comes to mind is I wonder about seeing um, Tyrant, and, and I admittedly don't haven't studied the history of etym- etymological nor um, you know philosophical of, of Tyrant, tyranny, and tyrants, but um, as taking away the moral sort of context of of maybe good and evil, and and making Tyrant instead madness, because I think of all of the examples of if you will, tyrants that sort of dot the Orlando Furioso, the, the smaller in, within the smaller tales. I think you even mentioned Marginor in your in your analysis. Um, is there any? Is I mean, do you? Is this a different? Is this is this a, a you know a different kind of tyranny than the mad the mad king, if you will? Uh, I mean, I think that um, the the trade of melancholy and uh, fury that um, sort of distinguish Ariosto's depiction of Orlando's madness are similar to the to the ways in which Plato, for instance, describes tyrants in or the, the psychology of tyrants in the Republic. And and so I mean that's 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 basically the, the the philosophical underpinning of 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 my reading there of of how um, Ariosto engages with with the, the theme of tyranny in in uh, in, um, um, in the poem. The, the the one of the objections that can be uh, sort of um, presented to to the reading of, of Orlando in sort of this political light is that Orlando is not a ruler. It's not, it doesn't rule anything in the Orlando Furioso. He's not Charlemagne. Yeah, it's not Charlemagne. Correct, yeah. And, and so if, 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 if Ariosto wanted to criticize, you know, or rather build a political allegory around the theme of tyranny, he would have used Charlemagne. The thing is that Charlemagne in, in the Orlando Furioso is, is not a very important character. And uh, it's a little more than a master of ceremonies, and um, and I, I'm not sure that that it has to be such a sort of direct allegory. So okay, the the, the emperor in the plot of the Orlando Furioso then has to be depicted as as a tyrant. When we know that tyranny doesn't have to, that, I mean, the tyrant doesn't have to be an emperor. Uh, any 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 petty ruler. As as Dante tells us at various points in the Divine Comedy, can be a tyrant in Italy. Uh, you can be a, this, the lord of a small town and act like a tyrant. So, th- to me, it's not so much the historical role that these individuals played in, in, in or or any sort of direct correlation between historical figures and uh, characters in the in the Furioso that matters. But more the fact that Ariosto identifies a certain psychological, and when I say psychological, I mean as disposition of the soul, like as Suke as 
as the Greek word for soul, um, that leads one to become a tyrant. Because, I mean, in the, in the Republic, um, uh, Plato draws this parallel between the individual soul and the different forms of government. And, and, and so he identifies the a tyrannical suke um, with those who are led by their appetites. And, and, and so this doesn't have to translate into the most uh, sort of powerful office in the book. It's like anyone can have a tyrannical disposition. And, and in, 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 in Ariosto's poem, it seems to me that First of all, anybody can be uh, can become mad, as 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 we learn with Astolfo when he travels to the moon to recover uh, Orlando's wits. But that um, so so any any one small lord can act like a tyrant. So Chimosco in uh, in the Netherlands, basically, or Marganor, and uh, and and so I I don't I don't I don't see the fact that. Uh, it's not Charlemagne that is depicted in in a tyrannical way that makes it impossible for us to read that that, that um, tyranny as, as one of the key themes in the in the Furioso and one that can be associated with Orlando's madness. Well, if we move, as you said, from the uh, micro to the macro, we we do that in a big way between the the third and fourth chapters. So, in the fourth chapter. We see in some ways more conventional epic enemies. Uh, you focus on Tasso's war between Christians and Muslims, and you you, you tell tell us some more about your reading of Tasso's vision of enemies. You know, that would be the New World, Christian Europe, and Islam. So, um, I mean, the, the Christ, I mean, the, the, the Tasso's poem is obviously built around the uh, history of the of the First Crusade, and it it does. Um, the picture of more traditional enemies, um, Islamic forces against uh, Christian forces. Um, I think even even um, even though these appear to be uh, or are ostensibly uh, sort of external enemies, if we if we if we follow the the sort of the conventions. That saw Islam as a, as a, as a, as, a, as an offshoot of Christianity, then you see that even this this sort of global this, this conflict on a global scale um, really becomes an internal sign conflict as well. So the 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 forces that uh, oppose the Crusaders exist within the same sort of theological and historical horizon. To which Christianity belongs, and uh, and and so that's that's one of the ways in which I I, I try to to discuss the Jerusalem Liberata in in um, in that chapter. The other the other sort of issue that I try to consider is the is is whether um, the the poem really does away with the centrifugal forces. In the poem, when I say centrifugal forces, is basically the romance and uh, and uh, the characters who appear to convert, including two of the major female characters in the poem are Herminia and uh, 
and, um, and Armida. And, uh, and my reading of those two episodes is that these, these two characters don't convert. So neither Herminia nor Armida become Christians in the poem. I mean, there's a nod, in, there's a nod towards the conversion. So famously, uh, Armida uh, says, to, says to Rinaldo that she will become his Ancella, right? His enemy. And, uh, and, and that's, that, that is an echo of the Gospel of Luke, the moment of the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will be the mother of Christ. And, and her response is, uh, fine, I'll be God's handmaid. Now, Armida says, your handmaid, handmaid, not God's handmaid. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's already a critical distinction. And then uh, the way in which Rinaldo describes his, uh, his future service towards Armida that does not suggest that she must convert so that he can help her. I mean, he, he promises to help her regain the kingdom that she claims to have lost before she uh, even says that she will become his handmaid. And, and similarly, the, the, the Erminia Tancredi uh, reunion in Canto 19 is it's kind of ironic and and and, uh, and 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 sort of couched in uh, in uh, in sensual um, allusions. So I don't see either either episode as suggesting that um, the poem sort of absorbs all all uh, all centrifugal forces within within it, sort of one unified authoritarian control. Uh, which is supposed to be personified by the crusader captain Gofrid. I think there's a scholarly desire, at least a tradition of this, to um, make all of the female characters sort of monolithic in some way in the end and uh, mobilize them in some ways to this Christian end. And, you know, I, I, I felt much the same way about um, Florinda. I mean, of course, she does convert, but what What's unclear, and, and unfortunately, some people don't see this as unclear in my mind, is that she, that she had, in converting, gives up her warrior identity as well. And uh, for whatever reason, I think you, you point this out very nicely. You know, you're sort of pushing back on some of these scholarly traditions. Um, I, I have a, one, more, one more question about the Jerusalem. I'm, I'm curious uh, if you want to, or I've found really compelling your discussion about the new world. I thought maybe you could tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, related to, it's actually, I mean, really related to the Armida issue because they, I mean, she's the, the new world in the Jerusalem Liberata really becomes Armida's island. And, uh, and, and, and the fact that she doesn't convert, um, assuming that, as some scholars have suggested, that her conversion would would indicate the sort of conversion of the the quote unquote discovered continent uh, to Christianity, suggests that maybe this process again of assimilation is not quite as complete as uh, some readers of the Jerusalem Liberata would would have it. And and then there is another detail that uh, I mean at least suggests that. Even if we were to to argue that that Tasso says that 
well, there should be a conversion of, of these of these new lands or an assimilation of these uh, discovered lands. Um, then this should not take place with uh, with force. So when the when the Carlo and Ubaldo, the two crusaders who are who are tasked with rescuing Rinaldo from this pleasant um, stay at uh, Termidas Island, um, are faced with the with a number of more or less magical exotic threats and and one of the two knights carlo uh, unsheaths his sword and, and and is about to strike this snake and and uh, and ubaldo stops him and reminds him that as they were instructed they're not supposed to use conventional uh, weapons to overcome this the challenges posed by the island and so he uses this magical wand that basically um sends the snake and and the other sort of creatures that that uh, try to stop them um, away, and so there's no there's a very specific instruction to these Christian knights not to use violence in order to face the uh, creatures they encounter on Armina's Island, which we we know is it's it, you know at least in in the in the published version of the Jerusalem Liberata corresponds to the uh, Canary Islands. So it's the one space beyond the Pillars of Hercules that comes to symbolize um, the colonized lands that were uh, sort of really occupied by European uh, empires uh, throughout the 16th century. Um, so that, that's, that's, I think, one significant detail that, I, 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 at least as far as I know, had not really been discuss much i don't i don't go to you know great length to discuss it but i think it's significant in the with well, I, found it, I found it one of your most compelling points because it gives to you even use the word i believe coexistence it gives the word um it gives to tasso who can also be read as somewhat um uh you know placing christianity firmly over Islam and you know because it's based on the first crusade I mean there's many ways to interpret this poem but you give to him a different I think aspect um, that suggests something possibly kinder and more you're, you're somewhat generous to Tasso I think in this reading and, it, and I found it very compelling this notion that conversion of the new world should be left up to the indigenous people of the new world and should not be forced um, I really fascinating. I you know I recommend anyone <laughs> studying the New World to to look at your yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to I don't want to try to describe Tasso as some sort of you know twenty first century you know multiculturalist. He, he's I not mean, you have a hard time with that one. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but at the same time, I, I I don't see this sort of unified mo- movement towards. Uh, one uh, authority, Christian imperialistic, that extends to everyone. I mean, the fact that the fact that Gofredo spares Altamoro, for instance, and at the very at the at the very end of the poem, and does not expect him to convert. Uh, to me, is significant. I mean, it indicates that you know the poem leaves the door open to. Well, let's say let's call it coexistence uh, among different um, um, religions. I mean, that's uh, 
let's that's the way I, I read that 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 episode and uh, and the episodes that involve Ermina and Armida. Well, I think that's a very happy note to to end on. So, I <laughs> why don't we move? I, I just curious, what are you? What do you have next? What's what's next? Uh, in the I've just begun uh, working on a project on uh, centaurs in uh, medieval and Renaissance Italy. And um, I mean, this is really sort of in the you know, it's really in its early stages. But the idea is to discuss you know first the sort of classical tradition. Uh, with Ovid, Statius, among others, maybe Xenophon, and then um, and then have a chapter on uh, you know on, on medieval writers, including uh, including Dante, and finish with Machiavelli, who kind of sort of reinvents the way in which uh, centers are used in uh, in uh, in medieval and Renaissance literature and political discourse. Wow, fantastic! I. I have a student to send you who was somewhat uh, obsessed with centaurs in my class. So excellent choice. <laughs> excellent choice. Well, Andrea, it's really been a pleasure and uh, I appreciated speaking with you today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Gary. It's been really, it's really been a privilege to, to chat with you. Thank you.